Super Talk Mississippi media production. If you're feeling anxious about your investments with all the economic volatility and chaos in Washington, tune in to Super Talk Jackson on Wednesdays from 9 to 10 a.m. and Sundays from 8.30 to 9.30 a.m. for Element Wealth Radio with Jeremy Nelson. Learn more at myelementwealth.com. Howdy, howdy, it's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbert and I am on location at Mississippi State University of Rhino safe and sound back in the Super Talk Mississippi headquarters. We'll be guiding you through the middle of your day with facts fodder and fine music on this. Friday y'all. <laughs> I thought you, I thought the board went down again there for a minute. I'm laughing at Houston over here, Rhino. Is all the equipment working properly today? So far, so good. All right, I feel good about it. Uh, it's been that's the first time I can ever remember that happening in my two and a half years of hosting the show. That was just bizarre, and it was just for a very short period of time. Back in the old, I told you, back in the old IT days, we used to say things that when things happened that we just could not explain. We say it was dirty electrons, and the customer would say, "Oh yeah, dirty electrons. <laughs> we need to clean those up." Yeah, we got to put some protons in there to clean them up. But we're we're looking good today. We are here at Mississippi State for the Child Advocacy Studies uh, Center, excuse me, of Mississippi. We are here to raise awareness of this important work. We'll hear from Carla Ty, Executive Director of Children's Advocacy Centers of Mississippi, Chris. Crystal Welch uh, is a member of the board, an advisory member of the board at the college, uh, Mississippi College Law School. We've also got Representative Lloyd Robertson in the wake of Tuesday's elections. We'll get his take on that. And we'll hear from Caleb Sailors, multimedia journalist, Super Talk Mississippi News. We'll get a rundown on all, of all the news across the Magnolia State and get uh, some glimpse into what the news department is tracking for next week. I think there will be a lot. Uh, something we need to address right off the bat here is the producer price index was released this morning. That is a measure of inflation at the wholesale level. Of course, we got the consumer price index reading yesterday. It came in a bit hotter than expected. Uh, at least the top line did. The core was uh, a bit lower by a tenth of a point, not any significant movement. But today we got news about the producer price index, and uh, it's up. It came in a bit hotter than expected, not by uh, a material amount, but it certainly gives cover to the Fed when they deliberate their next move as it pertains to interest rates. Many analysts believe we'll see a, a hike, a single hike, 
of a half a point, quarter a point perhaps for this year, and that'll be it. But I don't think it is. I think we are now poised to see a couple of hikes out of the Fed for this uh, particular year, 2023. Just because that inflation is sticky, can't seem to get rid of it. And the reason we cannot get rid of it, as we've discussed before, is because we have the Fed with their monetary policy tools, that being hiking interest rates and also uh, bond manipulation of the bond market, if you will, selling bonds and buying bonds. And that affects uh, the liquidity situation in the country which, of course, affects inflation. But we got the Biden administration with their reckless spending, and so you've got, you've got really terrible fiscal policy that is competing with monetary policy. Monetary policy in the form of interest rates and uh, the bond program from the Fed. And they won't say anything, will Fed Chairman Jerome Powell, about poor fiscal policy. Just chasing their tail. And we already shared, I think yesterday, that we've uh, clocked in at $1.6 trillion of deficit for fiscal year 2023. That, for the first 10 months, the federal government's fiscal year ends September 30. we got two months left. And it looks like we're headed for a $2 trillion deficit. $2 trillion. And so that would be, by the way, the third largest in the history of the country, the biggest deficit ever, 2020, Donald Trump's final year. That's because of all the COVID spending. And then we had 2021 with the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan during Biden's first year. That generated a $2.8 trillion deficit the prior year, 2020. The largest on record, $3.1 trillion. 2023, we're looking at $2 trillion. That would be the third largest in the history of these United States. The president had an interview. Did you see this, Rhino, with the Weather Channel? I don't know that a U.S. president has ever interviewed with the Weather Channel. And he, once again, he got a little weird. He was um, sitting and, and configured... Like, look like outdoors to me. The journalist and the president were about four or five feet apart so that they could fit in the screen at a reasonable size, just sitting in chairs facing each other. So the, the view was from the side, if you will. And like a fly landed on the journalist's soup, female. And he reached over to like brush the fly out. That's kind of weird for a president, in my view. But he made the point that he is for the termination, the permanent ending of drilling for oil in the United States. He said that again, and she asked him about that. He attempted to do so, at least rein it in considerably, on the coasts and off the coasts for fear of spillage, of course, into the oceans. And he, she asked him about that. He said, I tried, but you know, the court struck it down. So once again, that sends the signal, yes. I am for ending the exploration of fossil fuels and the use thereof in the country. Folks, you ain't ever going to get rid of inflation, ever, until we unleash the American energy sector. It's not possible. It's, it's pretty easy to figure out. That's because energy 
is an integrated component from a cost perspective in the production of all goods and services. And CEOs, if you look at their sentiments across the country, they're all saying, we don't have a good feeling about the trajectory that inflation is on because we see the continuous increase of the price of oil. It's now around 84 bucks a barrel. I think it's headed north of 90 If you look at the price in Mississippi these days, of course, it varies across the state. But in general, a gallon of regular, 320, 325 or so, that would be of the lowest grade of regular. We're talking about probably another 70%, 60, not 70%, 70 cents, 60 cents increase at the pump between now and the end of the year. Saudi Arabia is already declare they are cutting back on production. So what we got is we got our most ardent foes that produce a lot of oil in the Middle East. Of course, oil is a global commodity. And so the global supply dictates the the price, trickles all the way down to the pump. And we got a president who says, yeah, we are here to decrease, decrease the supply. Decrease it because... The climate cult has convinced him to do so. Yet this is the same president that maintains he is an advocate for hard-working American families. The least of economic means among us are getting hurt the most by this president's policies. When shall they wake up? That is the question. It is impossible to have a thriving economy in a thriving society without fossil fuels. Maybe at some point in the future that will be possible, but it is not right now. And Rhino, you and I have talked about it. We should be pursuing the construction of the small nuclear reactors in mass right now. That is the only way we can power the nation with sources that do not emit carbon. It is plentiful, it is reliable, it is safe, it is secure, yet we can't seem to get that done. It's the only way, and in the meantime, we have got to start reversing the message. No, we are not going to kill the fossil fuels industry. In fact, we're going to expand it. And if I were the president, I would go to the American people right now and say, hey, look, we understand we got to have fossil fuels for a while, but we support a matrix of energy sources. Let's let's scale all of them. Sure, I'm for renewable, I'm for nuclear, and I'm for fossil fuels. And right now, we cannot just pull the plug on fossil fuels. Just can't do it. We will not survive uh, without them. We are stepping aside for a break. Don't forget the Element Well Studios today at Mississippi State University. For Children's Advocacy Centers of Mississippi, we're coming back with Carla Ty, the Executive Director of Children's Advocacy Centers of Mississippi. Stay with us. The talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's get on with it. On Super Talk Mississippi. 
Welcome back, everyone. It is midday, Super Talk Mississippi. We are live from Mississippi State University for Children's Advocacy Centers of Mississippi. We welcome to the program Carla Ty, the Executive Director of Children's Advocacy Centers of Mississippi. Carla, good to see you. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. All right, so tell us uh, about the Children's Advocacy Centers of Mississippi. What's the mission of the organization? We are working to uh, defeat child abuse across the state. We have 11 child advocacy centers from North Mississippi down to the coast that uh, are working to um, respond to children after they've been victims of felony-level child abuse. So they provide a number of services to help them heal. And the folks that uh, work for the child advocacy centers, how, how do they get trained in order to help these children? So through our organization, we provide a number of trainings for forensic interviewers, victim advocates, for um, therapists, you know, the, the whole gamut. And then over the last few years, we've really been focusing on working with our colleges and universities to implement child advocacy studies. So we're mm. moving upstream to uh, prepare our future workforce. Yeah, we're going to be talking into some representatives today mm-hmm. from the colleges. So is this part of uh, like the social worker programs or how, how, do, how does that training fit into the curriculum? Well, what's key is that it's interdisciplinary. So okay. what we know is on the front line, you have law enforcement working with social workers, working with physicians, with prosecutors. So they have to learn to talk to each other, communicate the same language. Uh, they, they need to know each other's laws, their policies, uh, how to work together as a team because Child abuse is uh, quite a complex issue to respond to. And so what we want is to replicate that on the college level so that you have criminal justice majors taking courses with social work majors, with faith studies. So it is truly an interdisciplinary approach. Reading some of the statistics here, nearly 8,000, pardon me, 837 child abuse victims received services at a center that's a lot. Just last year. That's disturbing. How do you find out about these children? How do they come in to, to uh, work with you guys? So we receive referrals from law enforcement, Child Protective Services, the FBI, um, from the Attorney General's office. So it has to be an agency that is involved in the investigation of child abuse. Okay. And so then do they, they contact your organization and say, we, look, we've, we found a situation you guys need to know about. You get involved? Absolutely. So they make a referral to the local child advocacy center, and that's when everything springs into action. And we will conduct typically the front door that most people think about is the forensic interview. Mm-hmm. And so the child's referred and law enforcement, child protective services are there observing the interview at the, at that time. And we have trained forensic interviewers on staff at the child advocacy centers that interview the child in a non-leaning non-suggestive manner about that abuse allegation okay so the concern i would have uh, carl is what about the cases we don't know about i gotta believe there's a lot of those uh, how, how does law enforcement even find out do the children just finally figure out a way to get word to somebody that they that they believe can help them in the situation? It really uh, depends on the situation, but we often have intentional disclosures where children make make a report. They they learn something. This is not right, or they they're uncomfortable. They they've received um, 
you know, someone's asked them, maybe they've seen some signs or symptoms of abuse, and so they make a disclosure. Then there's oftentimes spontaneous disclosures or accidental disclosures where someone may walk in or see something, suspect something. But everybody in our state is a mandated reporter. So mm-hmm. we may have a teacher. You know, we okay. know that schools are, are are the location where a lot of our kids um, make make a disclosure because they have a they have a teacher that they trust or a teacher may see those signs and symptoms and so they were they report that to law enforcement or child protective services or or like in in the case of teachers which uh, of course have more interaction arguably with children than than uh, anybody else Mm -hmm. they're going to come in contact with them uh, short of the family environment are they compelled by law to report these situations is there laws on the books in mississippi that require them to notify somebody when they suspect suspect something is it filed Every citizen is required to mandate is, okay. is, is a mandated reporter in our state. So you and I, if we suspected abuse from our neighbor or uh, some somebody we saw in the grocery store, um, we are mandated by law to make that report. Okay, so when you use the the term mandated, you mean legally mandated? Legally mandated. We are okay. all reporters. Not just yes. an ethical or a moral mandate, but a legal mandate. Absolutely. Okay. Under the law, we are all required to report. If we suspect, we you know we. <laughs> As it should be. Ethically, we should sure. be willing to take care of children. Sure. So what should we be looking for? What are the red flags? Um, well, often it's going to be unexplained bruises, um, cuts. Um, it may be a child who suddenly has become very withdrawn. Children may begin um, bedwetting or having accidents um, that, are, that are unexplained. Also, mm. children may um, oftentimes will share a little bit about that abuse and kind of test the waters to see if, it, if that adult is a safe person to tell. Um, and, then, and then later on we'll make a full disclosure. Is there, are there some common threads in a home environment that tend to lead to the sort of abuse of children? Well, you know, it's it's interesting, and I, I think um, when you're talking about sexual abuse and physical abuse, you're talking about two different things okay. here. But um, with physical abuse, we, we saw um, a huge increase during the pandemic. You know, times of stress and families were... Um, you know, struggling with with jobs and security, and then living in a close environment. Kids were no longer in schools, and they were homeschooled. We saw those numbers skyrocket. So we we know that um, stress in a family can really trigger that abuse. Um, and then and then we we also see just parenting that has gone to the extreme. You know, not knowing, not not having been taught how to um, discipline a child without without it going too too far. I see. Mm-hmm. Are there areas of the state or just community environments that tend to be more prone to child abuse than others, or is it just widespread, it, sort of it random? crosses over every um, socioeconomic um, range. It, it impacts every culture. This is, uh, unfortunately, mm-hmm. child abuse does not discriminate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is a national problem, too, is it not? Absolutely. Um, the CDC says that um, just one year's worth of cases is cost the cost us $124 billion. Wow. Mm-hmm. So when you, your organization gets involved, 
what sort of action do you take? Do, do you remove the children from the home, place them in, in care elsewhere? Well, and that's the role of Child Protective Services. Right. I know that CPS, they'll be here, yeah. here later on today. So the Child Advocacy Centers are really there to provide um, coordination among all the multidisciplinary team members, sure. so law enforcement, social workers, prosecutors. Um, they're there to interview the children um, and, and conduct those forensic interviews. They also provide victim advocacy services because there's so many agencies that get involved that families that don't know how to navigate the system. Yeah. And they're there to, to work with those families on that, um, to be able to, to provide referrals for forensic medical, for the mental health um the, the appropriate therapist that be sh- should be seeing a child. Um, so that's the role of the Child Advocacy Center. And we stay in our lane, and then Child Protective Services is the one who would get involved with the placement for the child. And as I say, this is why the Child Advocacy Studies is so critical, is for all of those our future workforce to really understand those various disciplines. So it, it's, it sort of sounds like your organization maybe brings all these, you said interdisciplinary, which is a good way to describe it, but uh, sort of serves as the, maybe the orchestrator of all the resources to, mm-hmm. that you need to bring to bear to address these situations. Because it's not just one, it's not just law enforcement, it's not just social workers, it's not just physicians. You need them all in this case. Absolutely. And I think that's a great term for it. We're, we're orchestrating that. We're, yeah. we're really the one who's coordinating all of those different entities. So we've talked about um, kind of the, the, the negative side, of course, of child abuse, and, and it is um, just uh, abhorrent. Tell us about some successes you've had when you get involved. Oh, it's, there, there's so many successes. When, when we see that a child can come in, tell that story one time, not be re-traumatized by being tossed from agency to agency, get them in the appropriate services they need to help them heal from abuse, this does not have to be um, a life-defining event. This is something that has happened to them. They can heal from it and then move on and become um, just a happy, healthy citizen. Do once they sort of progress through age, do they do they come back and and say, you know, wow, I, I didn't realize what was going on. I see now. I'm so glad you guys got involved, and and I'm on my way to being a productive, healthy uh, adult. You know, we do, but I will say that typically is done uh, more privately. Okay. We don't see a sure. lot coming out. Sure. You know, you don't you don't hear a lot of celebrities coming out and saying yeah, this was my sure. experience. Yes. But um, you know it, though. Yes, I mean, we you, do. Yeah, mm-hmm. you you realize when that occurs. Mm-hmm. Well, um, we're glad that your organization exists. It's uh, it's sad that it has to, honestly, but. The children need a voice. They need an advocate. And it, it sounds like that's what you, I mean, it's the name of your organization. It's in, in your name. It's your brand. So we appreciate that. Thanks Thank for coming you. on, Carl. Appreciate it. Yep. We're stepping aside for a break right here. At 1050 today, we've got Crystal Welch. She is a CACM advisory board member, Mississippi College Law School. And we got Representative Lloyd Robertson in the next hour. Stay with us. We're coming right back. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Welcome, welcome to our show on Super Talk Mississippi. Okay, now you have a good one. Remember, that's when. 
Welcome back, everyone. It's Middays. We are on the campus of Mississippi State University today for Children's Advocacy Centers of Mississippi. We are set up, Randy and Starkville, on the C Spire text line, 601-879-4395. We are set up, Randy. He says, where on campus are you set up? We are at the uh, Lloyd Ricks Watson building. We're in the uh, first floor there. We're all set up. Come in the front door. Go to the right. Come on by and see us, Randy. Uh, let's see. Uh, hey, Gerard, I want to hear you ring a cowbell while you're on our beautiful campus today. Go over to the athletic department and look at our beautiful golden egg trophy. Looks so much better on our campus, says Jerry and Pontotoc. Well, Jerry, I wouldn't get too comfortable with that trophy. Uh, it, historically... It occurs to me that it tends to move around quite a bit. So <laughs> don't glue it or nail it to the table over there because it's probably going to be moving. It uh, It's a very mobile trophy, shall we say. But it is a beautiful campus up here. And uh, let's see, are they in school yet? I know they all moved in, but are uh, classes started? Not yet? Okay. But there's a bunch of folks here because, the, okay, it's Rush. Rush this week. All right, got it. Yeah, some some folks are informing me on what the schedule is. You know, I've been away from all that for a while, so I I don't know how that all that uh, plays out. Let's see. I hope you're wearing maroon on the ceasefire text line from the six six two. I've got on neutral colors today. The iconic Super Talk logo adorns the left side of my shirt today, so everybody know we're here with Super Talk. Let's see what else we got going on. Charles and Matheson says, funny how hot air finds a friendly weather reporter. <laughs> That's a good one. Referring to uh, President Joe Biden's recent interview with uh, a journalist from the Weather Channel. I guess it was maybe trying to connect his call for ending the consumption of fossil fuels uh, in the country to the weather. That's the best thing I could come up with. Let Russia, China, and Saudi Arabia make all the money on the ceasefire tax line, which will be substantial. They'll get richer and will get poor. It is, I think, fair to say that as our president is pushing to end the the just production of fossil fuels, because he doesn't want us to consume any, yeah, that in, in, no doubt plays into the hands of the nations that continue to produce the requisite energy we need to power the world that's absolutely true in russia let's be honest they need it in order to prosecute their war in ukraine by the way you see this rhino the the president is asking for more money more money more money for ukraine 40 billion i believe is the figure he seeks from the congress he's looking for like four billion for the border does this make any sense we're going to send 30-something billion over to Ukraine. There's, like, zero accountability. No computation of return on investment for that money we're sending to Ukraine. What's that all about? No accountability for it. Who knows? It may just be flowing into the pockets of the oligarchs. But just a dab of money to the border. And have you seen the governor of Massachusetts yesterday went to the state in a presser at the podium imploring 
the citizens of the great state of Massachusetts to take in these migrants into their home. This is crazy that a governor of a state in this country is asking its citizens to open their homes up to illegals crossing the border. They say, we can't handle it anymore, the state. The mayor of New York, it's overrunning our city. It's costing us billions. We don't have it. And Joe, he's more worried about ending drilling of oil. It's like it just doesn't even exist, this problem. So also on the ceasefire text line, help me understand your argument considering the following fact, that average daily U.S. oil production under Biden has been higher than under any previous president. And 2023 is on pace to be the highest output year in history. Is it based on supply or refinery? Well, the first thing we need to discuss is this notion of energy independence. This is grossly misunderstood by most people in our country. If I think most people think, hey, if we consume X number of barrels of oil a day, we also produce X number, and everything we produce stays here, we refine it, and we consume it here. That's absolutely not the case. Never has been. We, we even during the Trump administration, we average importing about seven, seven to eight million barrels a day. We consume about 20 million. It was pretty much at the 19 and a half million mark when Trump left office, about 20 million. We do not produce enough oil to meet our demand as a country. That's absolutely true. But energy independence is determined based on total consumption of all forms of energy and production thereof because of our abundant and a very high natural gas production we actually do produce during the trump administration we produced overall energy forms more than we consume so you can't just look at it in terms of just oil and gas fuel gas diesel from which uh, which are made from oil. You can't look you can't look at it just exclusively in that respect. You have to look at total the total matrix of energy that we use that we power our country with. It absolutely is true. We produce more of total forms of energy including oil than we consume. But not more oil than we consume. Just crude oil. We import. But so To the question here is, okay, under Biden, it has increased 850,000 barrels a day. That is absolutely true. We are still importing just as we did under Trump. But, as I said earlier, oil is a global commodity. The price of gas, the price of the barrel of oil, of course, determines the price of fuel, the refined product that we put in our cars. All of that is determined based on the global price of oil when foreign nations are decreasing the production of oil in an effort to boost the price and the united states doesn't fill uh that that void of reduced oil production then right the price of oil as a global commodity will rise so the point i'm making is that this country has the ability to produce more oil than it is producing, but it's not going to under this administration. Sure, it's up 850,000 barrels. It needs to be up 
2 million barrels to offset the decrease that comes from other nations. That is possible. That is doable. But this president has made it clear, nope, we ain't drilling anymore. So when you're sending that message and you're not being efficient in the approval of permits, you don't really want any oil drilling, you're doing everything you can to make it difficult for oil producers to produce more oil, you end up with less supply on the global stage. Saudi Arabia knows that. They say, wow, that President Biden over there, he's telling those silly Americans, don't drill any more oil. And you know what? They still got to have it. So if we just cut our production a little bit here, it'll boost the price up. They want $85 a barrel oil. Americans want $60 a barrel. And they're in control, not us. That's the point. That's the point. Now, it's absolutely true that we do not have the refinery capacity in this country to produce all the oil that we generate, the crude oil that we pull out of the ground. We have to send a lot of it abroad for refining because of the mismatch between the grade of the oil, much of the oil we produce, and the refineries. And you've heard all the oil executives that build these gigantic multi-billion dollar refineries that take about 10 years before they start breaking even on that investment for a payback. You've heard them say there will never be another oil refinery in this country. We are relying on refineries abroad to produce the gas and the diesel. We then ship back over here. So think about that for a second. I mean, this, this is not complex economics here, complex supply chain matters we pull the oil out of the ground we put it on tankers we send it to other countries to refine and then we ship it back over here to put in our cars that's exactly what's happened on the ceasefire tax line bin laden said a hundred dollar a barrel oil will cripple the west absolutely greg and newton the money is hush money from biden i you know you do have to wonder don't you greg is, is this part of the um, the bribe, the payback for the bribe from Burisma? It, may, it really makes you wonder. wonder how many migrants those governors and mayors took in, says Donald in Kokomo. Probably zero in their homes, of course. Rules for thee, not for me. Lead by example. Don't see the beast Biden riding is not electric. That's true. Girardi should have worn red. Then again, MSU students would tip over the Super Talk bus. <laughs> That's a good one. All right, we're stepping aside for a break right here. When we come back, it's Crystal Welch, advisory board member, Mississippi College Law School. Stay with us. Covering the stories that matter most to Mississippians. Gerard Gibbert, Middays with Gerard, Super Talk, Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It's midday. Super Talk Mississippi. We're live at Mississippi State University today for Children's Advocacy Centers of Mississippi. We're pleased to welcome Crystal Welch, CACM Advisory Board member, Mississippi College School of Law. Crystal, thanks for coming on. 
thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. So tell us about uh, your involvement with the Children's Advocacy Centers of Mississippi. Yeah, so I am a advisory board member. I am immediate past president of the board of directors. Okay. And I am an particularly honored to be on the board because at the law school, I work in the Family and Children's Law Department, and our law center um, hires faculty professors who are training law students for practice of law um, in careers involving child maltreatment. Okay. So I do adoption law. I teach youth court law where we represent juveniles who are accused of committing delinquent acts who are often committing those delinquent acts in a very circular way. Usually there's some history of neglect or abuse, and then later on there's some um, actions that rise to the level of a delinquent act, which would be a criminal act if they were an adult, but they're juveniles. Yeah. So um, I, I teach that in youth court, and for the adoption clinic, um, we uh, we. We train the, the, the law students to represent the foster families in adoption cases where the children were victims of abuse, neglect, abandonment, or other forms of maltreatment. Mm. And so as a part of our curriculum, the law school, Mississippi College School of Law, has agreed to implement the CAST Studies training program um, because we want to make sure that these students are properly trained in dealing with children who are going to be talking about potentially traumatic events that may or may not have occurred, but we're trying to get to the root of it in the adoption clinic because if the trauma has occurred, if they have been abused, if they have been neglected, um, we're trying to partner them with families, foster families, who want to adopt them and give them a forever home. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, when I when I think about just in my business career, uh, interacting with uh, lawyers in, in a variety of practice areas, as you do, of course, in business, this seems a little unique in that perhaps the attorney is placed in a situation where they're, they're not only uh, counseling on law, but maybe serving as is kind of a therapist even in some cases. Right? I mean, you have a, it's a little diff, different approach when you're, of course, interacting with a child as yeah. it is deposing someone in, mm-hmm. a, in a business suit, for absolutely, example. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And that's a brilliant observation um, because I will say that when you come to my law office, it doesn't necessarily look like a lawyer's office. Mm. It's inundated with Hello Kitty. It's <laughs> got colorful paintings and things that make a child feel comfortable, sure. that makes a family feel comfortable. Because the goal is to establish a rapport with these children. Um, you know, they're humans, they're people. And our goal is to give them a voice so that they can feel heard. And if we're going to advocate for them, we've got to give them that space to open up to us and create that relationship. Um, and so that's exactly what we're doing. We're counseling them. We're talking about situations. And we're trying to figure out, you know, exactly what happened and how can we counsel these people to emerge from this predicament in a superior position. You know, children, it occurs to me, are just sort of naturally conditioned to trust adults. Mm. And when tr- and when adults abuse that and betray that trust and it and it uh, becomes abusive to the child mm-hmm. 
how does the lawyer then in working with a child earn that trust so, so that they will speak openly and, and perhaps get them the resources they need to, to help them out of this situation? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. I think one of the things that I have learned in my experience practicing with children um, who generally distrust, whether it's the system or the people within the system that have caused them to bounce from home to home, um, the the goal is to get in there and try to find something endearing about that juvenile, about that child, something that doesn't place the attention on you. You're not trying to get that child to like you because at that moment, it's making you the center of attention. Yeah. You're not the focus. The yeah. child is. Sure. So your goal is to get in there and to find something endearing about that child okay. and to figure out what it is that I can do to make them understand that I hear you, I see you. And at that moment, you make that child the nucleus of everything else that's going on and not yourself. So that's what we try to do in the clinic when we're meeting with these juveniles, with these children. Our goal is to try to find something endearing about them and establish a rapport so that they can open up and trust us um, because like you said a lot of times once they've had these situations they begin to distrust the people that are essentially there to protect them yeah. and that's unfortunate we got about a minute left but but i, I do want to ask you do you in uh in the law school curriculum mm-hmm. in in the curriculum of of this study area this practice area mm-hmm. do you teach these sorts of skills because this is a little different than just studying the law yeah Absolutely. We actually have simulations in the classroom that mimic all of these skill sets so that we okay. can have the law students sit there and make the mistakes that they're going to make in the classroom okay. so that then when they get out there in real cases, they know what they're doing. Makes perfect sense. Crystal yeah. Welch, uh, advisory board member with CACM, the Mississippi College School of Law, has been our guest. We're stepping aside for a break. It's top of the hour. That means Fox News, Super Talk News. We're coming right back with Representative Lloyd Robertson. Stay with us. Welcome to the show that challenges you to think deeply deeply. and look beyond political posturing. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Hour two of Middays. We are live in the Element Wealth Studio from Mississippi State University. We're here for Children's Advocacy Centers of Mississippi. We're going to be here all day. We started out at 6 o'clock in the morning, and we got uh, the rest of the Super Talk hosts and programs going to be right here at the Lloyd Ricks Watson building here in the center of Mississippi State University. But joining us now, Lloyd Robertson, Representative Lloyd Robertson. He represents District 43, which includes Octibaha in Winston Counties, serves as the chair of the House Rules Committee, Octibaha County, right where we are right now. That's right. That's and right. you got your maroon on today. I, I wore my maroon. Well, it's Friday. Oh. Okay. You gotta, you gotta wear your maroon on Friday. And we're at Mississippi State. We're at Mississippi State, and, yeah. and 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 truly, anyone that hasn't been on this campus needs to walk around here. If you don't think this is the 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 best and be- most beautiful campus in the state, uh, I'll buy you lunch. So <laughs> come on, we we we've got awesome. the best. 
It definitely is. And uh, we're always pleased to be here uh, hosting the show. But all right, uh, Representative Robertson, we just had elections, primary elections in the state of Mississippi this past Tuesday. Were there any surprises? I didn't, I didn't really think there were any surprises. I, I, there were times in, in that I thought that, that – uh, the lieutenant governor's race could go either way at, at, at any given moment, but yeah. the reality is that, that I think that the, the good people decided what direction we wanted to go in, and, and I, I'm I'm proud to say that I, I'm I'm glad the direction that is that direction. I mean, I think that that's the way we need to be moving, and uh, Lieutenant uh, Governor Delbert Hoseman is is going to do a good job. I think we've got some good people uh, all around that that. Uh, you know, this next four years is, is pivotal. I mean, we're going to have a new speaker. Uh, we're going to have pro tem. I mean, all of these things are going to fall into place. I'm very excited about the potential that we've got. Okay. You you feel like Representative Jason White will uh, end up being the speaker? 100%. Okay. Um, I've, I've heard the same thing. I've, I've 100%. I, I think that, that it's just a matter of us getting there and, and voting and, and moving on. We're I, I committed to Jason very early. Uh Honestly, for no other reason than I thought he was the right person. He's 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 a good he's a good man. He's from Kosciuszko. Uh I think that he's going to do an excellent job. His heart is uh, is very much conservative, and he's going to to push some things. But I think that we're going to get back to building roads and and doing some things economically that's benefiting our our whole state. He and uh, Speaker of the House, former Speaker of the House, or present Speaker of the House, I guess, term ends this year. Let's be fair there. Right. Uh, Philip Gunn, not running, did not run for re-election uh, to the House, and therefore he will be moving on. Uh, and we wait to see what his plans are. I think he and, and Representative White are fairly close to, uh, closely aligned on policy issues and just philosophy of government, but but they're a little different in style, I would say. That's a fair assessment. Yeah. I, I think that they had a, an incredible working relationship yeah. um, over the last four years. I know that, that, that our current speaker has leaned into to Jason for a lot, of, and, and, and that's what proved himself to a lot of us uh, to, to want to for him to be the next in line for the job. Yeah. I have tremendous amount of respect in uh, Speaker Gunn. Uh, he's done an excellent job of moving us to a Republican majority. Uh, you, you can't take that away from him. He, yeah. has, he has been the leader of building that House uh, side to give us the supermajority that we've got. So you, you cannot take away... Uh, more of an important part and a part factoring into the historical measures that that Philip Gunn has had on this state. Yeah, I think his legacy will be will be noted in that respect. Uh, I would totally agree. He um, he pushed for a lot of uh, con- conservative policy that he advocated for for some time, honestly. But once we got the uh, the numbers in place, shall we say, we were able to get some of that done, a lot of that done. Uh, I think he would leave saying that. He regrets not getting full elimination of the income tax done. He, he put a, a lot of his personal capital in that one and advocated for it and promoted it, articulated it uh, quite well, I think. but just came up a little short. Uh, I, I told him to when we got the reform we did get done and acted into law, I said, you know, just consider this a down payment. Uh, it's kind of the way I, I termed it and described it. Speaking of which, what do you see? Uh, Representative Robertson as, as the priorities for the uh, the new term. I think one of the the well, first and foremost, we're going to have to get in there and 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 see see who the leadership is. I think I have a pretty good idea of yeah. who is going to. We're be talking there. about committee chairs, committee so chairmen, right? and that yeah. kind of thing. But I think that the focus primarily is going to be 
I know from my standpoint, infrastructure is something that's really, really important. We've put this past year we put more money into infrastructure than we probably have ever put into infrastructure. I think that that is a starting point for us to continue hmm. continue forward because I think some of our roads need to, to – I think that we need to make certain that our roads are ready for to when we say business is open. They need to have a smooth road getting here to, to make certain that we can get bigger, better jobs for our people. Sure. So I think that's going to be one of them. I okay. think uh, education is always first and foremost. It's half the budget. It's half the budget. Yeah. Um, I think at some point we're going to have – whether we're discussing uh, children's programming and things like that for making sure that their health care is taken care of. But I think there's, for me personally, I think there's a a real need to look into the mental health aspects of our state. We we have a lot of of issues out there, and you really don't realize how, what what a, I hate to call it a desert for for help, Mm -hmm. but you don't realize how much there is out there uh, needed until you have someone come to you and ask you, hey, can you help me with my son who's dealing with whatever? Yeah. I don't want to get into that. But, yeah. um, and you get to a point where you realize there's just such a limited, uh, there's limited resources. We us. talked about it yesterday. We, and that's the fundamental problem. My, my daughter, having taught in public school the last 10 years, uh, discusses it, how, how they have kids that need these services, and there just ain't enough people to go around that, that can work with them. I mean, that's a specialized skill. It's a hundred, you're 100% correct. We're, we're going to have to get, I think, creative in how we approach this. Um, I don't know what the answer is. I certainly don't, don't want to suggest to you that, that we add one more thing to our teachers. Yeah. Uh, but we need to have the ability to have a psychologist or somebody available. Uh, if you're dealing with a child that, that's cutting themselves or if you're dealing with a child that has bulimia or you're dealing with a child that's talking about hurting themselves, yeah. y- your world stops as a parent and, and grandparent and, and whatever. Your world absolutely stops because you realize that or if, you, if you're smart, you realize that that, that child could genuinely do something to themselves that, that you can't take back. Yeah. And sometimes, as you know, that the child may confide these thoughts with a teacher. That's right. And not the parent. That's right. And and that's probably more common than people yeah. realize. I know that when I was growing up, I had two or three uh, teachers that even to this day I look back on and say, you know, they were pivotal. But I talked to them more than I actually talked to my own father uh, about some things that bothered me. So, we, we you know, we put so much on these teachers and we ask them uh, to, to do so much. And we've got to be able to have the resources resources available uh, that if there is a serious problem uh, we had a, we had a situation locally uh, not too long ago uh, that the, the child got in deeper in, in a scenario and, and and was persuaded to do something that they shouldn't have done yeah. and that those parents will have to live with that the rest of their lives and I, I'd really like for us to get to to a place that we're we're able to address some of that I don't think we're going to stop all of it I'm, I'm not foolish sure. enough to think that that's going to happen but uh, when I get a phone call from a mother or a father mm-hmm. whose child is going through something and so I does, have, that ha- does that happen yes, really? sir. I yes, mean sir. constituents will call you and they'll, yes, they'll share these concerns and yes, see sir. what you can do yes sir and, and, and I'll tell you when things come together and you're able to help them and sometimes some of my a lot of my constituents have the resources to be able to sure to which i thank god every day for that but that doesn't happen every time sure um but when you get that phone call and and, and before i had children i don't know that i would have gotten this but um but they call you and they tell you that they're that concerned and you hear it in their voice you can mm. tell mm. so I, I i really do believe that that we're going to have to take this more seriously 
Uh, and that's not to say that there hadn't been good people taking it seriously. It's just right now I think we need to put some resources into it. COVID, uh, I think, took a lot of the interaction between people away, and we're going to have to figure out a way to start plugging that back in. You know, it's interesting that you did you bring this up and you highlight this because I, I noted, I talked about it on the show yesterday, I, I attended uh, the governor's watch party, and then I attended uh, the lieutenant governor's, and the lieutenant governor actually brought that up. Uh, mental health is something the state needed to deal with as a priority in the next term. So I, I appreciate you kind of articulating that at a more detailed level because he didn't give any specifics. I mean, it's a, yes, a, a speech, you know, on yes, the sir. night of an election. But I appreciate you highlighting that and bringing that to our attention. I, I'll share this with you when we got a minute left. But I, I serve, I'm happy to serve on, on a board in my county, Madison County, that presently um, the superintendent of Madison County School serves as a chair. And it's Madison County Business League and Foundation, don't mind saying that. And, and yesterday, she, she was, we were just talking about ACT scores across the district, and she made the point that there are some 11 languages being spoken in Ridgeland High School right now. Holy It's mo- a huge problem. That's amazing. 11. How are you even supposed to? You, you to, can't. You, that's, that's, that's impossible to you even can. manage. Appreciate you coming on. Appreciate you having me. Always be there for you. Yes, sir. We're coming right back with more in the Element Well Studio from Mississippi State for Children's Advocacy Centers of Mississippi. Stay with us. Talk that keeps Mississippi talking. We're rolling. Hit it. Go. Play it. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. A video that was considered way ahead of its time. Isn't that right, Rhino? Oh, yeah. (laughs) We are back at Mississippi State University. We're in the Lloyd Ricks Watson building. If you're in the area, come on by and check us out. We got Super Talk Element Well Studio temporarily set up here. And uh, the crew's here all day. Got started at 6 a.m. this morning. Richard Cross filling in for Paul Gallo on site here. And let's see, we got Rebecca Turner coming up after middays. And then the Sports Talk folks will be around here. It's an all-day deal, Super Talk, um, on the campus of Mississippi State University. So we've been talking this morning about um, Bidenomics, I guess you could call it. And the person who, who sent the question in, Rhino, that I asked about, okay, well, we actually have increased production under the Biden regime, <laughs> and but yet we still are witnessing an inflated price of oil, and of course you're seeing that translate in that into higher prices at the pump, and... Uh, Thanked us for a, a, ask, uh, pardon me, answering that question, answering that question. And, and it is true that 2023 is on tap to be the year in which this country produces more oil than it ever has. But it still is not enough to counter the decrease of production abroad. And again, oil is a global commodity. 
it, it, the price of it is based on global supply and demand, not the supply and demand in any one country within its borders. doesn't really matter. But uh, I still believe that this president, who virtually every day comes out and says, we're going to stop drilling. We have got to end the consumption of fossil fuels. And the climate change zealots, they want to control your your gas stoves and your pizza ovens and your showers and your dishwashers, your washing machines, uh, your, let's see, your garden tools. What am I leaving out there, Rhino? It's, it's just like everything uh, that, that they just want to insert government in the middle of and control use of it. There, there's just never any discussion about, gee, this stuff is pretty convenient. Of course, they want to control your thermostats if they can. You know, this stuff is pretty good for society. Maybe we ought to figure out a way to produce more energy. And you never hear any talk of that other than we just got to cut fossil fuels off today and move everybody to wind and sun and solar. It's just not practical. Yeah, somebody says light bulbs. Thank you. We just had the incandescent. The uh, incandescent ban, right, went into effect a few days ago. Uh, this just has such a de minimis impact on the consumption. It's just more, it's virtue signaling for the climate cult. It really doesn't do anything, especially when you consider that, that China and India two heavily populated countries, more population than this country, don't care. They just keep producing energy from forms that are is the cheapest. <laughs> that's what they look for. If that's coal, so be it. They don't care. It's just crazy. It really is. Jerry in Waynesboro says, when is crazed Democrat Jamie Raskin going to prison for trying to overthrow the 2016 election? Not only did crackpot Jamie Raskin object to electors, but went on to become the witch hunt impeachment. Yeah, there's, there certainly is some, I think, validity to pointing to the ridiculous response from the Democrats after 2016. Of course, they're all focused on Trump's response after 2020. But the entire time Trump was in office, there's no doubt that uh, they, they just repeated constantly that it was Russia interference, Russia collusion, and there was zero evidence of that. It was so dumb. But they continued to pound that drum. They could not accept that Donald Trump won the election against the worst candidate in history, Hillary Clinton. Of course, in fairness, many Republicans in our country cannot accept the fact that Joe Biden defeated Donald Trump, that, in fact, the election was rigged. I will say, Rhino, I've seen some talk of the election Tuesday being rigged. You seen any of this? I've seen a little bit on social media, but not from anybody that I take seriously. Yeah, and I, I hear you. I, 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 think I think you're right. But, I, but I'm just disappointed to see that folks are out there saying that, yeah, it was rigged. I, but no specifics, just, you know, that it's just rigged. I don't know exactly what that means. But there there's some degree of just disappointment that's being channeled 
that way. You know, it's it's uh, it was rigged, and and what you see primarily are the suggestions that. Democrats crossed over and voted in the Republican primary. Gosh, how many people did we have on the text line, Rhino, say, well, how come uh, I wasn't able to vote for my local offices that had candidates who were Democrats running that I support, and that precluded me from voting uh, in the Republican state primary, statewide primaries, could, therefore couldn't vote for Republican candidates for governor, lieutenant governor, down the list. And that's because we we do have uh, close primaries in the state. And I've even seen some people that I'm a little shocked at with who are Republicans. Uh, let me put it this way, conservatives, they wouldn't call themselves necessarily Republicans, but conservatives calling for close primaries in that only voters who were associated with that party could vote in that party's primary, which means we would all have to declare a party affiliation in our voter registration data. And when you show up at the poll, you would they would know already, by the way, when you sign in and you present your ID, oh, I see you're a registered Republican. Here's your Republican ballot. I've seen conservatives call for that. Not really thinking through what that means, I don't think. So I'm I'm a um, little disappointed in that. Also need to pass this on. Not, not sure if you've seen this, Rhino. Brandon Presley, Democrat candidate for governor. He says, let me back up a little bit. You remember a few weeks ago, maybe even not that long ago, he shared his four-point plan to address health care in Mississippi. Point one that I recall was expand Medicaid. That's that's default in the Democrat Party. Point two was appoint a bona fide health care professional with an MD to run Medicaid, as if that's going to solve Medicaid's problems or, or improve, let's put it that way, the administration of Medicaid. Well, now... I'll, I'll read his quote here, his, his uh, tweet. This is just a few hours ago. It's not rocket science, this is Brandon Presley, to want someone who has worn a badge to run the state's largest law enforcement agency or someone who has run a hospital or been a doctor to run the state's division of Medicaid. And, of course, he's taking a shot there at Commissioner Sean Tendall, who... who who issued a tweet, posted a tweet in response to Presley's declaration. He says, hi, Brandon. It's painfully obvious that you know nothing about the office you seek. So let me educate you a bit on DPS, one of the agencies you'll never oversee because you'll never be elected. Touche, Commissioner Tyndall. And, and the commissioner went on. In fact, to provide some details about the organizational structure and the mission of the Department of Public Safety. Now, I, I gotta say this in response to that. You seek the office of governor, Mr. Presley. Do you realize everything that falls under the umbrella of government for the governor? It's everything in the whole dang state. So that means then you should be an expert on education, on health care, 
on corrections, on public safety, on infrastructure, on technology? You got all them skills? No, nobody does. Nobody does. Effective leaders surround themselves with effective managers. The commissioner is not necessarily, just because he's not a badged law enforcement officer, doesn't mean he can't put in place badged law enforcement officers to run the organizational units within the overall Department of Public Safety that can effectively lead those business units. Managing people, folks, is managing people. The widgets don't matter. People who have good leadership and organizational and management skills, they're unique individuals. And again, they can pretty much manage anything at the end of the day. They surround themselves with technical people, technicians that understand all those details. We're taking a break. We're coming right back with Keith Stovall, cast faculty at Kapiah Lincoln Community College. Okay, is everybody ready? I'm ready. Ready here. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. On Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Midday Super Talk Mississippi, live from Mississippi State University. That is where we have temporarily set up the Element Well Studio today for Children's Advocacy Centers of Mississippi. To donate, text GIVE to 601-476-1222. Also, I'm seeing some folks uh, starting to eat some lunch around here. Rhino, we want to give a special thanks to Sweet Peppers Deli for providing lunch today. They just remodeled their Starkville location, so be sure to stop by if you are in the area. I saw the new remodeled Sweet Peppers Deli on the way into campus here this morning. Joining us now, Keith Stovall, cast coordinator for Child Advocacy Studies at Colin Community College. Keith, thanks for coming on. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, I've been enjoying learning about all the great work that the Children's Advocacy Centers of Mississippi uh, perform. It sounds like it's much-needed service, but more importantly, uh, our our university setting, it seems like, is, is... included uh, a lot of uh, the, the curriculum or in this uh, in their curriculum the the discipline that involves helping out these kids in these tough situations absolutely and I think that children's advocacy centers of Mississippi recognize that if we're going to prevent child abuse if we're going to stop child abuse then we have got to do a better job of recognizing it preventing it on the ground level so cast studies child advocacy studies, seems to tackle that by you know we got to get to these these social workers before they become social workers we've got to get to teachers before they become teachers we've got to start at the ground level Um, i teach students at the community college who are going into every possible profession you can think of Um, and i think of coaches for instance if if there's a young guy who's going into coaching uh, and he starts off as a kindergarten pe coach and mm-hmm. right develops a relationship with young kids he needs to recognize the signs and symptoms of abuse so that's really what cast education tries to do we want to recognize and teach our future leaders and future educators future social workers counselors and nurses 
let's recognize child abuse early. Well, it seems like the point is, Keith, that help me out here, that children um, are, are complex, like we all are, mm-hmm. but they, they have a, a pretty wide range of um, just interaction right mm-hmm. so they're they're in a lot of different settings mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and those could be anywhere from education to sports to uh to the, the physician mm-hmm. a medical mm-hmm. setting a home setting mm-hmm. and so it's important for everybody to to understand i guess the the possible mm-hmm. um red flags mm-hmm. if you will of, of abuse and in by injecting your uh, discipline into these courses of study, you're really preparing people that are going to be working mm-hmm. with kids in That's their exactly careers. Right. That's exactly right. So CAST Studies stands for Child Advocacy Studies. Uh, it's interdisciplinary. So as I said, we want to reach those who may be majoring in psychology, sociology, social work, um, or whatever. And we want to equip students to recognize signs and symptoms of abuse And we find that really it's best to do this in what we call experiential learning. Right. So the idea is simulation. So we teach a class, Perspectives in Child Maltreatment. Uh, It's about three or four, maybe three years old on our campus. We we implemented it. Um, And the idea of simulation is, hey, let's set up a room or a house uh, and let's set it up in such a way so that uh, someone who wants to learn about... uh, helping kids can see what it is like in a home where you might be seeing neglect or you might be seeing physical abuse or, uh, Lord forbid, sexual abuse or some other type of neglect. And so we can set up a house, set up a room in such a way so that we get uh, just an immersive experiential component. Uh, and at Colin, what we've realized is that you know our CAST course is entirely online. And during COVID, it was nearly impossible to do any kind of simulation, right? You can't. So really, uh, we received a grant, uh, thankfully, from our friends at Children's Advocacy Centers of Mississippi. And they are helping us at Colin create a virtual care house where if I'm teaching an online course uh, and I have one student who maybe they work at a factory and they get off at 8 p.m. and they're coming in and they're. They're trying to do their coursework. Well, you know, they're working at that factory during the day. They can't come to a simulation house. So we're bringing simulation to them. And so uh, because of the grant that we've received through our partnership with Children's Advocacy Centers in Mississippi, we're developing what we're calling the Virtual Care House. That stands for Child Advocacy Response and Education. Hmm. So a virtual care house would enable that factory worker who gets off, comes in, logs on into their, uh, their course. Uh, we can bring them into a room and we can say, in this scenario, uh, there is a child who told their teacher that you know, they, they get bruises when, they're, uh, when they're, their stepdad gets mad. You know, and these are kind of um, emotionally charged settings, but that's what 
that's what the reality of child abuse is. So, is is this a curriculum that is kind of uh, standardized across yes. the nation? Absolutely, that you're yes. using. Yes, sir. And, and and so I assume that whoever creates that is constantly updating that, just based yes. on experience from the field, from the people that are dealing with these situations. Right. And some of the people that we have here in the room are some of those thought leaders. Okay. Um, and so it, it actually Mississippi is a leader in caste education. Hmm. And um, you miss the leaders at the Children's Advocacy Centers of Mississippi um, do a great job of of kind of pushing that curriculum out. Wendy Copeland is our liaison, and she does a good job of letting us know develops, developments in the field as, as well as our own research. And um, so one thing that we're trying to do is is to create updated, current, um, informed practice that really reaches out across uh, the curriculum, interdisciplinary, so that, like I said, um, we have colleagues in the CAST network who who kind of focus on medical evaluations. Right? How, how does the community college and, and, the, uh, and the universities, how do they coordinate with the advocacy centers uh, just in sort of tuning the curriculum? Well, we have regular conference calls. We have regular trainings. Um, there is an annual conference, uh, One Loud Voice. I'll be pre- presenting at that conference, um, and others can tell you more about that later. But it's there really is a huge network and infrastructure. And like I said, Mississippi is a, is a thought leader. We have several community colleges and IHLs, so four-year institutions. Okay. And so we have partnerships with the IHLs. So if I teach a student uh, my perspectives in child maltreatment course, um, and they go to Mississippi State or they go to USM or Ole Miss or Jackson State or Alcorn, um, they can pick right up and, and get a minor. So they can get 18 hours in child advocacy studies. And so we work really closely to making sure that everything we teach is is on the same page. What sort of uh, jobs then are available for folks to go through that curriculum? We can get folks plugged in, even with an associate's degree, at some of uh, some of the uh, whether it be a mental health facility, if it's a child advocacy center. Um, I like to challenge my students if they if they say, "Hey, I want to make a difference as an advocate." I would like to encourage them to go into uh, social work, psychology, get a master's. Uh, we see a lot of students um, get a child advocacy studies uh, minor and a social work major. That's a common pair. And what that would do is would enable you to um, to kind of focus in. But what's interesting, and I'll just add this, is that uh, you know if I'm if I'm going into education, or if I'm going into if I'm majoring in nursing, cast is a wonderful minor. Gotcha. Is there is there certain um, sort of personality or background experience that um, a, a college student might need in order to uh, pursue this sort of line of work? You know, I started my career off uh, at a children's advocacy center, so I got a, a master's degree from USM and. Uh, in 2001, and I worked as a forensic interviewer, and I worked interviewing kids. Um, and then I got into education, and I got into into that. The child advocacy piece is now brought into my daily teaching. And I, I think the number one thing, and I tell students all this, is that everybody needs to recognize signs and symptoms of abuse. Everybody needs to know what I need to do, who I need to call. 
But if I'm going to listen to accounts of abuse every day, like a forensic interviewer, um, I think it's a calling. I think yeah. it's a calling. I think you got to have compassion. I think you have to have um, a thick skin, and you have to have a heart. Yeah, uh, it, it sounds like it. it it's uh, the discussion today. Before we go, we got about a minute left. Reminds me so much of the many interviews I've conducted with folks involved in human trafficking. Mm. And I know a lot of times, mm. of course, human trafficking involves child abuse. Absolutely, um, they're sometimes linked. Mm-hmm. And, and and it just makes me think about recognizing the warning signs that we all should be doing. But also want to give you a shout out from Representative Lee Yancey. Just texted me, said to tell you hello. I love him. Keith Stovall has been our guest with Kapai Lincoln County Community College. We're stepping aside for a break right here on Middays. We're at Mississippi State University for Children's Advocacy Centers of Mississippi. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard. Good for America. Good for fans of justice and truth. Good for us. Super Talk Mississippi. This is what we stand for. Welcome back, everyone. Middays from Mississippi State University for Children's Advocacy Centers of uh, Mississippi. Gary in the Berg says, shaken baby syndrome is real and the effects are horrific. Alcohol plays, he goes on to say, a big part of child abuse and also spousal abuse. In short, alcohol abuse and drugs have to be called out in a big way. Best place is before the child is born. In places like the OB office and childbirth classes, alcohol and drugs are the great destroyer of families, and this does not get called out enough, says Gary. Well, Gary, I think that where we got to start is uh, getting uh, expectant mothers to see an OB. That's a huge problem in our state. There is a, a huge lack of prenatal care. That leads to all kinds of problems, uh, problematic gestation periods, problematic deliveries, and typically problematic situations post-delivery. And Gary goes on to ask, will your guests go to hospital nurseries and OB offices with this message? Don't think they've been invited, Gary. So I, I see your point there, and that maybe is something that warrants some discussion but that's really not the role of this organization uh, or the role of the training in the education uh, at, at the community college and higher ed level. It's more to prepare those to be aware of these situations and, and to work with children, families that experience these preventions, I think, a whole different discipline, uh, Gary, honestly. And I, and I agree that requires some some uh, further investigation and review, and, and it's something you've talked about a lot before. I know, Gary, um, on the on the program that uh, you and I agree on 
that the, the dissolution of the nuclear family is a huge problem in society and leads to so many societal problems, crime, economic difficulties, drugs, abuse, no doubt about it. And, and that's just a, a completely different subject, I feel like, that needs to be addressed by a different set of people and organizations. But I'm with you, man. I, I hear you. And it's a huge problem in our state where we have the highest percentage of fatherless homes, either at or near the top of of um, out-of-wedlock births, teenage pregnancies. All of those, I think, are inextricably linked to our state's problems. And you know what the biggest problem is? I've said it so many times on the program. Poverty. It's poverty. We're the poorest state in the country. Have been since statistics have been recorded on household income and per per capita income, 1929. We have ranked 50th. 50th. Every single dang year. We've made some strides. We've made some progress. But we got a lot more to do. There's no doubt about that. So how do we lift up household incomes and per capita income? Got to boost the economy. That should be our focus. Boost the economy. So many times I've said it's great that we're improving the quality of K-12 education, and the statistics bear that out. To, to a great extent, we've, we serve as a template for other states on how to get that done. I'm proud of that. Our governor talks about it regularly. He should. It's quite the accomplishment. It's quite the milestone. But what we're doing is preparing our kids in K-12 through to go to college. So that's pretty much what the purpose of that K-12 through education is, the, the material, the content, the instruction. It's all geared towards getting to college, which I think is great. Now, I also acknowledge, and I think many in our state would, that's, that's not the only path to success. There are lots of other opportunities that don't require a college degree, and I would say those are growing more so than opportunities for college-degreed people are. But back to the college experience and the the achievement of a college degree. Heck, most of our students in this state, they're already on the road to another state to go to work before the ink is dried on their diploma. That's a problem. Well, that's because there ain't nowhere to work for them here. That's just a fact. And that's why it is incumbent upon us and our government to focus on growing the economy of the state of Mississippi, and in particular, growing the knowledge economy of the state of Mississippi and producing opportunities for knowledge workers. We have fantastic universities. I'm sitting right in the middle of one right now. And they're producing incredible talent. we got to keep them here. That's how we will address and improve all of the problems of the state of Mississippi. We're stepping aside for a break right here. Once again, we're on the campus of Mississippi State University for Children's Advocacy Centers of Mississippi. It's time for Fox News, Super Talk News. We'll be right back. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines. 
and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Hour three of middays, the afternoon portion of the program, live from Mississippi State University for Children's Advocacy Centers of Mississippi on this Friday, y'all. <laughs> we have made it indeed. Again, special thanks to Sweet Pepper's Deli for providing lunch today. They just remodeled their Starkville location, so be sure to stop by if you are in the area and donate to donate, text GIVE to 601-476-1222. GIVE to 601-476-1222. We're pleased to welcome Nancy Hungerford, a board member with Children's Advocacy Centers of Mississippi. Nancy, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much. Good afternoon. We've uh, certainly enjoyed visiting with all the good folks uh, associated with the organization. Tell us how you got involved with Children's Advocacy Centers. Um, I am a, a Mississippian by choice, not by birth, but I ended <laughs> up in, <laughs> and that's a good thing, Yeah, went to... Uh, it moved to Natchez in the early 1980s to become the director of an old Christian children's home called okay. Natchez Children's Home. Uh, oldest in the state, started in 1816, um, and we were a residential facility for children. So for 40 years, I have worked with children who were removed from their homes usually by the Department of Human Services and uh, came to us in lots of states of disarray and uh, anxiety and uh, a lot of messes to clean up. Yeah. Good way to put it. <laughs> it is. We um, did that work for for many, many years, and later, uh, about 10 years ago, decided to add a children's advocacy center to our array of services. And that is how I have come to know CACs. I have known children who needed the services of CACs for, you know, two generations uh, just didn't have the access to them. Mm-hmm. So we started one in Natchez. There are now 12 in the state of Mississippi, and we're trying to grow. Uh, was asked after we started our CAC to come on board for the CACM and have uh, counted that a, a great professional and personal joy uh, in meeting so many of the folks you've talked to, uh, board members as well as professionals in the field who are out there to uh, try to mitigate yeah. what goes on in families and children. So, Nancy, how does how does the organization receive funding? I know we've we've uh, shouted out the the text line to give to the organization, right. the, the phone number there. How do they get their money? Well, that's probably not going to be my best answer. <laughs> we get money from um, the uh, Victims of Crime Act, okay. which is. Uh, Money that is so it's for grant money. Yeah. We get grant money. We do lots of fundraisers. Okay. Uh, you know, we have some regular donors, and we're always looking for uh, additional ones. We okay. do lots of events and special things. So, combination private and and public yes. money. Yeah. Yeah. As, as I used to tell my mother, if it ain't illegal and too immoral, we're going to do it. To raise <laughs> <I got you. laughs> to raise some money for these children. 
<laughs> How long has the organization been in existence? Um, the CAC movement began in the early uh, 1980s, okay. and um, I think Carla has been with us since uh, around 2000. So Carla, it's the been, executive Carla, director the we executive talked to director. earlier, yeah? We did, mm-hmm. and who uh, holds the information and so much of the energy that drives <laughs> this, this wonderful organization. I think... Um, you, your last guest was talking about a, a template. Yeah. Uh, use the term template. Yep. I, I really think that is what continues to draw me to the the work of Children's Advocacy Centers of Mississippi, and particularly this CAST program that we're talking about today. Um, we do get we do get painted often in Mississippi with. The worst and the lowest and yep. the least and yep. the whatever. But we are number one in the nation in the work that we have done with developing this CAST program. Uh, it, it started off with lots of separate people coming together, mm-hmm. realizing that, you know, more is better than one, uh, and then taking that group and applying the cast template to it so that there's uniformity so that there is uh, communication so that when one little child gets an interview and services in north mississippi but another child gets the same services in south mississippi it's exactly the same sure uh not the mcdonald's approach I think I think that's true. Yeah. You know what you're going to get. It's been very successful for them. Anywhere you go in the world, we consistent. Want, we need that many. Yeah. <laughs> we need that many CACs. Yeah. Sadly. <laughs> uh, yes, sadly. We'd all like to work ourselves out of a job, but I've I've been in it for 40 years, and so I don't wow. see that happening. But yeah. that template has proven to be so uh, effective, and we have other states now looking at us. And wanting to know, how are you doing that in Mississippi? Yeah. That's a Mississippi model that we want to know about. This is a nationwide problem. It this is isn't a, unique to Mississippi. Absolutely not. We just happen to be several steps ahead of the hounds in trying to uh, to work with it. So I'm proud of that work. Uh, I think the... Uh, one thing I want to just tell you about, because it also was referenced, uh, your last guest was talking about a virtual... Uh, uh, classroom that he was working out of right. Colin. Right, <clears throat> Keith Stovall from Colin. Mm-hmm. That is right. Uh, at the at the center uh, center offices, CACM offices in Jackson, we have just completed what I call our mock community. And in the office space there on the uh, on Lakeland Drive, we have developed rooms, probably six or seven different little rooms, each of them set up to look like a motel room, uh, a classroom, a doctor's office, a, an apartment with a kitchen, a courtroom, a, all of the diff- a classroom. All of those can be toured. People can come and look at those. That is where the training goes on for this experiential learning. Uh, so effective. I, so these would be all the venues. Didn't mean to interrupt, yes, but these would be all the venues that, that, that the child is going to be found. Exactly. During that part of their life. That's exactly right. Yeah. And it is powerful to walk in and look at one of those rooms, the one in the kitchen that has the kitchen in the living room area. You know, it's got a gun sitting over on the uh, on the TV stand. It's got pot sitting by the kitchen counter. The actors that we hire to simulate so that all of these students that we're trying to reach can 
literally sit and watch this thing unfold, participate in it. We can stop it and say, whoop, wait, that didn't work. We need to go back. That was not the that was not the best response. So learning by doing. I think the takeaway here is this isn't something you can just learn out of a book. You can't sit in a classroom at a desk and learn out of a book. Nope. Through a lecture. And I I taught school for a few years and never I had a great education, never had the first reference to dealing with an abused child. Hmm. And I know I had a classroom that had them, but I just it was just not a conversation. Well, that's a good point, Dan- Nancy. Do you feel like that that we're more apt to discuss these very thorny, sensitive issues today than maybe we were historically? And, and perhaps that was the reason we didn't talk about it then. We just wanted to kind of keep it quiet. Well, I think there's still a lot of that. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm a great storyteller, and I sometimes tell stories that are true. My mother says... If you write a book, you're going to have to put it under fiction because nobody's going to believe your truth. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but we, it does exist. We are perhaps in a, a situation where we can talk more about it a bit more freely. And praise God, we've got resources now like our children's advocacy centers. That's, yeah. that's a huge it, – it's a one-stop shop because the child comes in and does an interview and then – there is victim advocacy for the family. There's counseling. There's court preparation. You know, you, you just sort of encircle them and make them um, make, take that family and just help them to get through what is on the best day a hideous process. Yeah. So. I received a text on the ceasefire text line I wanted to pass along here. It says, great family the Hungerfords are, and they have done a wonderful job for years in Natchez. I want to pass that on to you. Well, thank you so Somebody much. Somebody notices. That's I, great. I appreciate that. Yeah. I do. I do. So <laughs> do, you, um, do you see this organization expanding in just in terms of the number of centers, staff, et cetera, all the I above? Do. Yeah. I do. We, I mean, need the more, we need more centers. We want to make them as accessible to children. We don't want them driving halfway across the state to get a, a, an interview. Yeah. Uh, if they need those services, they need them to be accessible and close, you know, close at hand. We need, we do, we need more people, and this CAST program is going to train lots of those in all of the different disciplines to respond to these little people. Well, your positive energy and your enthusiasm about this incredibly difficult topic is noticeable, and, and I just want to let you know that. Appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much for your time. You Come bet. see us in Natchez. You bet. Folks, we're stepping aside for a break right here. It is time for one, and when we come back, it's Caleb Sailors, multimedia journalist, Super Talk Mississippi News. We're going to run down the news from across the Magnolia State this week and maybe discuss what we can expect next week. Stay with us. Interrupt this program. Gerard Gibbert. Here we go. This is huge, huge, huge news. Huge, huge, huge news. Huge. You need to listen to this. Middays with Gerard. Super Talk, Mississippi.
Welcome back, everyone. Midday Super Talk Mississippi, live from Mississippi State University. Today, we're here for Children's Advocacy Centers of Mississippi. And we appreciate everybody tuning in today. We, uh, we got a text here on the ceasefire text line. Thomas in Greenwood says, Guns and pot are legal in Mississippi, so why are those props? Well, Thomas, there's a difference between what is legal and what is responsible. So what we're talking about here is what would be a responsible approach to something that is legal. You're right. Guns are legal. Medical marijuana is legal in the state of Mississippi. But is it responsible to have a weapon out? A gun just on a counter in a kitchen where children are present and and marijuana as well. Does that make sense? Is that responsible? Even though it's legal, sure, it's legal. So I'm a little surprised that uh, you would make that statement, honestly, Thomas. Nobody really said anything about legality here, and I don't think that uh, that this organization advocates for making guns illegal. I don't know what their position. Oh, we got Caleb? I'm here. Oh, my bad. I missed you there, buddy. You're good, Gerard. I'm just sitting here listening. I know you were there. I was just going off on a bit of a rant, as you could tell. We'll have to keep you through the next segment. But I I, I, I wasn't sure. I I don't think we need another Alec Baldwin-type situation (laughs) happening. Yeah, good point. So I I had to get that out there while it came hot off the press here, so I apologize for that. But we'll just keep talking into the next segment uh, because we got an open one. But, you know, Thomas, I I know you probably got more guns than any household in the state of Mississippi. In fact, I I think I've asked you before when you're going to be ordering that nuclear warhead because I I do think you support, right, no restrictions on any sort of firepower whatsoever. But, again, these are privileges that we have. These are rights we have under the law. I think it would be abusive for just a a firearm to be sitting out, especially a loaded one, in a household, on a kitchen counter, when children are around. And the same with with drugs. All right, Caleb Saylor's multimedia journalist, Super Talk Mississippi News. I'm here. All right, Caleb, I apologize for that. No, you That's were my good. mistake. You were uh, fine. Just, I was I was enjoying listening. <laughs> I think it's the first time I've talked to you when we weren't in the studio together. So you weren't sitting in front of me, and I just uh, had a little flight of the head there. Wanted to talk to Thomas about his text. All right, so um, you guys have been tracking a lot of news this week with uh, the primaries. Absolutely. Now they, they are complete. What do you what do you think? What's the news department think about all this? Well, we uh, you and I discussed the primaries in detail on Wednesday, and then you and Henry Barber had a really good discussion. Uh oh, you and Henry Barber had a good discussion as well on Wednesday, and so I encourage all of our listeners to go back and listen to those interviews—the one that you had with me, and the one you had with Henry as well. 
Uh, but we've got some other election news going on in Mississippi. Uh, the city of Starkville, where you currently are right now, will be holding its inaugural pet election this year. And so people will be able to nominate their dogs or their cats to run for office, run for the pet mayor position. And uh, they'll be able to submit them uh, through excuse me, August 25th to nominate their pet. It's a $50 fee to nominate. And from August 28th to September 15th, residents will be able to vote for which pet they think should represent the city of Starkville as pet mayor. And uh, I thought it was pretty interesting. I asked, I reached out to the mayor of Starkville, Lynn Spurl, and I reached out to Paige Watson, the executive director of Starkville Main Street. And they informed me that Dak, the live mascot at Mississippi State, will not be running for election in the, uh, so I know, I know I had to reach out. I'm like, well, I mean, if Dak runs, well, I don't think it'd be worth it for any other pet to run, but Dak is not going to be running. So people in Starkville, uh, residents of Starkville and Mississippi State students who live in the city will be able to nominate their pet for this all important election coming up soon. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, any, any thoughts about the, the marquee race on the Republican side, that being the lieutenant governor's race. Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman ended up prevailing, fending off a very stiff challenge from popular Senator Chris McDaniel. I thought it was a statement. Uh, the people of Mississippi made a statement on Tuesday, basically rejecting the senator's message that you know Delbert Hoseman is a quote-unquote closet Democrat. I believe the people of Mississippi liked the lieutenant governor's track record, liked that what he presented in teacher pay raises, tax cuts, etc., and they went to the ballot box and made their voices heard. Yeah. Well. You can't exactly describe it as a mandate, though, right? I mean, he gets 52% of the votes. Uh, Tiffany Longino, uh, really not a well-known figure, pulls off, what, 18,000, 19,000 votes, 5% of the total. Chris McDaniel comes in at 43% and change. Uh, you can't really say it's a mandate. No, it's it's not, and I believe that the – well, Chris McDaniel's people, after after he lost the election, after he conceded to the lieutenant governor, he said, I mean, that the lieutenant governor had something to learn from the people in droves voting for the senator. I mean, he got over 150,000 votes, which you make a good point that it isn't a mandate to the lieutenant governor that, you know, there are large droves of Mississippians who, you know, didn't think he was as conservative as he presented himself and didn't think that he was doing the job as effectively as they would like. But still, though, the majority of the people spoke, though. Yeah, I think that's true. And so uh, we're set for another term with uh, Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman presiding over the Senate. We're going to get a new Speaker of the House. As Speaker of the House, Philip Gunn, retires from service in the Mississippi House of Representatives. Looks like all indications are Representative Jason White will move into that role. If I were a betting man right now, I think we would agree that Governor Tate Reeves will cruise to victory in the general. No doubt that his primary, pardon me, his general election opponent, Brandon Presley, the Democrat, is going to wage quite the campaign against him. He seems like he's got he's well funded and he's he's active, he's vocal, he's energetic. He is, but you also see Governor Tate Reeves pulling some punches as well. I mean, the governor hasn't just sat back and run on his track record. I mean, he's taking shots at Brandon Presley as of right now. 
And you know, you would expect Presley to punch the governor on the hospital crisis in Mississippi on ethics reform, which he has repeatedly. But I wasn't expecting to see Governor Reeves going after Brandon Presley the way he has at this point. I mean, even today, you had him, you know, accusing Brandon Presley of taking campaign contributions from people linked to Hunter Biden and the Chinese Communist Party. And so you, you really see Reeves, I mean, he's taking some shots at Presley and he's, he's setting it up to where I'm not going to be the punching bag going into November. I'm going to stand up for myself as well. Yes, I attended his watch party, his victory party, on uh, Tuesday evening, and he delivered remarks, of course, once the race was called. And I think he, for the first time that I've heard, uh, enunciated what is likely to be a campaign slogan, and he says, we don't want Benny, Biden, and Brandon. (laughs) And I think we're going to see more of that uh, from the governor as we approach Election Day. I took a picture of somebody holding up a sign that said those exact things at the Neshoba <laughs> County Fair. I have it on my phone. Oh, okay. I sent it, I sent it okay. to Will East. Will uh, promptly said he was not going to post that on our Super Talk social media pages. <laughs> but I saw that, and I thought that was quite hilarious. But, the, I mean, the governor is forming this parallel that Brandon Presley – I'm not. this is not what I think, obviously. I'm just reporting what the governor is saying. But forming this parallel that Brandon Presley represents coastal elites like Gavin Newsom or like – AOC in, in Massachusetts, or in New York, rather. Yeah. But he's saying um, that Brandon Presley's not the blue dog Democrat that he presents himself, rather that he fits in with the Stacey Abrams of the country. And so that's where he's going to attack Presley, trying to form a parallel saying he's not you know, going to fit in with Mississippians or resonate with Mississippi voters, and that Reeves is the homegrown candidate that represents Mississippi's values. Yeah, we had a... Uh a text here on the ceasefire text line. Ken from Pearl says, "Do you think that ads like tainted Tate Reeves will encourage Democrats to make GOP corruption a political issue in the general election?" Period. I do not. If you want to stick around, Caleb, we can talk some more after the break. Here, I got you. All right, we got Caleb Sailors, multimedia journalist, Super Talk Mississippi News, joining us on middays. We're coming right back. Going beyond the headlines, breaking down the stories that matter to Mississippi. Middays with Gerard on Super Talk Mississippi. back everyone midday super talk mississippi we are live from mississippi state university for children's advocacy centers of mississippi we've got caleb sailors multimedia journalist super talk mississippi news uh, down in the super talk studio today we're just talking about the primary elections just completed on the ceasefire text line i just happened to say in the last segment that with respect to the lieutenant governor's race, I think the, certainly the marquee race 
on Tuesday that uh, the lieutenant governor, in winning with 52%, certainly couldn't be construed as a mandate on the ceasefire tax line, more of a mandate than Tate had his first election with help from the Trump family. Showing bias because Hoseman supports public education so strongly, good show otherwise. <laughs> Not really sure what this person's saying exactly. I don't know what bias has to do with public education, if they're talking to me about that. But I don't recall the governor getting a great deal of support from Donald Trump in 2019. I do recall Vice President Mike Pence coming to Mississippi, to the Mississippi Coliseum, the Gulf Coast Coliseum. I attended that event, as a matter of fact, and and he endorsed Tate. Um, but uh, Tate would have won with or without Donald Trump or Mike Pence's support. And by the way, that was that was as we approached the general. Um, the governor Tate Reeves, who had just finished his term as lieutenant governor, he he I believe would have won regardless of uh, Trump's support. And I don't really remember any just major outpouring of support endorsement of Trump. And this, this person also goes on to say, and Tate faced a dim when he got low 50s, definitely not a mandate, may have lost without Trump's support again. So I, I think that pretty much aligns with the breakdown of Republicans versus Democrats in the state. Uh, so when you look at the makeup of our legislature, which is consists of super majorities in both chambers plus Republicans across the statewide offices, I'd have to call that a mandate of the majority of people in the state. I'm just simply describing Tuesday as not necessarily one for an incumbent lieutenant governor. That's all I'm saying. Nothing more, nothing less. Uh, I think there are policy positions on the part of both that I could align with. And maybe what we need is more of a blend, honestly. Uh, between the policy positions of the two candidates. But we'll, we'll see, Caleb, if there's going to be any difference in the way these um, the candidates, in this case, Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman, is there going to be any difference in the way he governs in the next term from the first term? I'm I'm not sure. Uh, he He's pledged to continue working on tax reform and to the degree he has. I mean, he was a big fan of the rebate. Uh, program he issued last year that didn't go through the Senate or the House. Um, but I don't know. He, he promoted mental health a lot in his uh, victory speech. So I think he's going to do a lot of work. And he, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, okay. I thought you were about to say something. Yeah. And he's pushed this studies, um, these studies on women, children, and families in like a pro, post Roe versus Wade Mississippi. So I think he'll push a lot of these social causes that he supported as lieutenant governor now in terms of what he'll do in regard to economics, the taxes. I'm not sure. We'll, we'll see when we get there. Yeah. John in Oxford, and we had another as well, um, just point out that Donald Trump came Donald Trump Jr., pardon me, came to Oxford and spoke at Johnny Morgan's shop, stumping for Tate. I, I happen to be there. I do recall that, and and I witnessed the speech. I got to tell you, though, folks, there was very little said about Governor Tate Reeves. It was mostly about uh, the, the Trumps and Donald Trump and the Trump family. He was also there, as I recall, with Kimberly Guilfoyle 
um, who he's married to. So I, I don't know that I would exactly call that a big endorsement from uh, the Trumps because it just really wasn't the, most of the content of the speech itself. But regardless, I, I don't think that made the difference with respect to um, the election. I, I think the governor prevails either way. I don't think you can say, well, if, if Donald Trump hadn't endorsed him, he wouldn't have won. I mean, there probably are some candidates that you could uh, assert that about, but I don't think this is the case. So were you surprised at any of the other legislative races? Uh, I was surprised to see Nick Baines go to a runoff. I didn't expect that. Um, or would Yes. Well, pivoting, I do want to pivot away from politics, though, away from the elections. We did have a big story that happened yesterday that didn't get a lot yeah. of local attention. So the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, right, they overturned a law, that a uh, federal law that prevents unlawful drug users from possessing a firearm. And the case originated in Gulfport. A 26-year-old by the name of Patrick Daniels was uh, arrested. So it was during a traffic stop. Uh, officers found uh, two weapons in his vehicle, but they also found the butt of a um, marijuana cigarette, like a marijuana joint. And the, under that federal law, he would he was in violation. He couldn't legally purchase a or own a firearm, right? So he was convicted in July of 2022, sentenced to nearly four years in prison and uh, three years of probation. But he wasn't drug tested at the scene. He admitted to be a frequent user of marijuana, but there was no evidence that he was like high while he was driving or driving under the influence. And so the court ruled that there's there's no statute, there's no constitutionality in taking away a firearm from someone who's sober. Because they, they referenced, one of the judges referenced a like an alcoholic owning a firearm, right? There's no law preventing someone who is a frequent abuser of alcohol from owning a a gun, owning a firearm, and so they completely overturned this law. So now people who you know have used illegal drugs before are still able to purchase firearms, or now they are. And uh, Patrick Daniels was is a free man now. He's no longer in jail. Hmm. Interesting. What about this story about the Rankin County tax assessor? So John Sullivan, the tax assessor of Rankin County, was accused of rape uh, by a then 19-year-old girl. This was March of last year of 2022. He and some of his friends and this 19-year-old and some of her friends were at a bar in Byram, and they had all drank a little too much. And long story short, everybody ends up at his house, at Sullivan's house, and they're in his hot tub. He, he alleges that while in his hot tub, he and the 19-year-old at the time, he was 53 at the time, 52 or 53 at the time, he alleges that the two were getting intimate with one another, and one thing led to another. They end up in his bedroom, and he they continue to get intimate with one another. Well, the I, we didn't identify the name of the suspect. We don't do that for any alleged rape victims, whether it happened or didn't. We, we don't do that. But she claims that she was blacked out, that she doesn't remember any of this until the tail end when her friends were knocking on Sullivan's door, banging on the door, seeing what's going on. And he opens the door. Her friends are looking. He turns on the light. She jumps up, starts punching him. She said it was in self-defense because he was violating her. He, he kind of insinuated she did it out of embarrassment. And so he picks her up, throws her back on the bed, which was kind of the basis for a simple assault charge that he got. 
And the court ruled, yes, not the court, but a jury on the court ruled yesterday, though, that he was innocent, that everything that happened was consensual. And um, he maintained that. Ooh. Sullivan maintained that the entire time. But the interesting thing to me, and, and JT Mitchell, our news director, pointed this out, too, is that the jury consisted of 11 men and uh, one female. So... I don't know. We had Therese Apel on with uh, Mary Weed and, and you earlier, and she kind of noticed that irregularity, too. That, and it's kind of interesting that the panel of jurors consisted of 92% males. However, though, the jury ruled that that the everything that happened was consensual and that Sullivan, although it seems, I don't know, immoral on the, on the surface, that he didn't do anything necessarily illegal. Wow. So this this is really kind of two high-profile cases over the last couple of weeks involving uh, Rankin County. Mm-hmm. We, we, besides the Rankin County tax assessor, we got the Rankin County Sheriff's Department individuals that uh, went to federal court over some wrongdoing in their capacity of sheriff's deputies. Absolutely, and we've covered that story extensively. I was at the courthouse when all of that unraveled, and if you need any more information, you can go to supertalk.fm. To those listening, we covered the Rankin County Sheriff's case very extensively, and we'll continue to cover it, too, when more information is released and more details are are presented as well. But the officers that were involved in that case are set to be sentenced um, for federal crimes in um, November. City of Starkville, where we are, a new pet mayor, is that true? That's what we were talking about earlier in the last segment. Yes, so Starkville, will, uh, will, <laughs> the residents will get to elect a, a pet mayor, and uh, but the runners-up, though, will be named, the two runners-up will be the fur chief, like the fire chief, or the chief of police in the city. But I, I, like I said in the last segment, I got word that Dak, the Mississippi State University's <laughs> live mascot, will not be running for the office, so... People, if you live in Starkville, if you're a Mississippi State student that lives there, please nominate your uh, your pet, your dog, or your cat to hold the elected office. All the proceeds are going to benefit uh, Main Street, Starkville, Starkville's Main Street Association. I'm going to have to talk to Mayor Lynn Sproul about that. Absolutely. Well, I reached out to her earlier, and she gave me word. We're coming right back. Thanks a lot, folks. Stay with us. Gerard Gibbert. He keeps his classified documents right where they belong. Inside a Journey record jacket from the 1980s. Gerard Gibbert. Super Talk Mississippi. Oh my head. Oh baby, it's a long way down to the river. Oh my head. Oh baby, it's a long way Welcome back, everyone. It is Middays from Mississippi State University for Children's Advocacy Centers of Mississippi. Joining us now, Shay Hutchinson, a CAST faculty member and also Children's Advocacy Centers program with Canopy Children's Solutions. Uh, Shay, good to see you. Good to see you. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Uh, absolutely. So, uh, full disclosure, I am honored to serve on the board of Canopy Children's Solutions. What a 
great uh, program uh, is provided by Canopy and great organization, great work they do. Uh, and a fantastic board we have. As sure well. do. Amazing board, board members. Uh, I mean, it's a, it really is good. So, uh, But appreciate you coming on. We're talking about the child advocacy studies, of course. And you're, it says you're a faculty member. Tell, tell me about I that. I am. Yeah. Uh, so about a year ago, I started teaching the child advocacy studies classes at Mississippi College in Clinton. Okay. Um, and we are about to complete our first cohort uh, of seven students who will get their CAS certificate. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I was asking uh, Keith Stovall earlier from uh, Colin Community College, of course, have a similar curriculum at the community college level. What sort of person enters this line of work? This, this has really got to be a calling. Mm, it really is a calling uh, to, to work with children of any kind, yeah. right? But what we, we know, um, and it's become more real uh, in the last few years, is uh, children are suffering. Uh, where we're all suffering, but there's a lot of trauma happening, and I think people just want to help. Uh, so people are called to the helping field, but then there are those professions who may not realize um, what is actually happening with children. Uh, there's about one in seven children who experience some type of maltreatment uh, in, nationally. Um, one in five children have a diagnosable mental health disorder. Uh, one in ten um, have suffered some type of sexual abuse. So it's it's an issue for all of us. Startling statistics. That just sounds ridiculously high, honestly. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, almost to the point of being scary because the future of our nation, of our society, of our globe uh, depends on stable, successful, productive children becoming adults absolutely absolutely which is why we need early intervention when children do experience some type of maltreatment and to work with the families when possible to keep the family together and to help them become healthy and to thrive uh, which is the really the intersection for me where Canopy and uh, the Child Advocacy Centers really intersect. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. How, how, do they, how do they integrate here? How do they work together, or, or do they work together? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So Canopy has uh, a, a, uh, our South Mississippi Children Advocacy Center in the, on the Gulf Coast, and we also have a location in Pascagoula. Yeah. And we've had that uh, Child Advocacy Center for almost 10 years now that we've been operating that we just last year served over a thousand children um, that have come through for forensic interviewing and uh, then referred on for mental health services, medical services, and a lot of times Canopy has the privilege of serving those children long term through our continuum of care um, with outpatient clinic um, services for behavioral health and to support the families. Are there sometimes some overlap? overlap in the in the situations that canopy deals with with children and the situation that the i mean i know you operate we operate the child Mm -hmm. uh, advocacy but i guess what i'm trying to say is are children subject to having being abused and also having some of these other problems absolutely absolutely a a lot of times that's the precursor right the trauma that that is endured um even it may not be physical trauma it could be emotional neglect um that really impacts the development of of children that makes sense which is something more that canopy uh, addresses in its typical services that's right yeah well that, that makes total sense so do you see an expansion of that relationship between canopy and the children's advocacy center i think 
for child maltreatment in general, can't that is where Canopy is. Yeah. We're about kids, helping kids thrive, yeah. Yeah. Um, and really getting upstream in prevention. Um, we we don't want any child to suffer. Nobody does wants a child to suffer any type of maltreatment. Sure, uh, Canopy is really leaning more in the prevention area of really uh, working with those families before CPS ever gets involved yeah. to offer support, to give them resources, to uh, provide parenting classes, to to help them have skills that they may not have had when they were kids. Shay, the statistics that you cited earlier that I uh, honestly are just remarkable uh, in my view. Are, are we trending in the wrong direction here, and is there a cause for that? Mm, I think um, the trends have, have – I'm not – I can't – I can't speak to the trends. They've been, I know on the behavioral health side, uh, we've actually, it's, the trend is swinging up, which is not a good right, thing. Right, right. Um, and I would imagine the same uh, with child maltreatment. And with the, with the pandemic, that really escalated a lot of issues. Um, for families, it impacted the stress. Um, and oftentimes, unfortunately, that's taken out on the children. So that would seem like, and we got to go, but that would seem like that means we got to do more to prevent these situations. That's right, exactly. Right? Exactly. Yep. Exactly. Appreciate it, Shay. Good right, to see you. you. Thanks so for coming on. Yep. All right, folks. We are out of time here today. We have enjoyed hosting the show from Mississippi State University for the Children's Advocacy Centers. Don't forget, you can donate by texting "Give" to six zero one four seven six one two two two. Back with you Monday. Until then, stay safe and God bless everyone. Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.